Welcome to Tax Notes Talk, a podcast from Tax Notes, the leading source of tax news, information, and analysis. Welcome to the podcast. I'm David Stewart, Editor-in-Chief of Worldwide Tax Daily. This week, anti-unanimity. After years of slow progress on several priorities, the European Commission is proposing a change in the way that tax directives are approved. Ending the requirement that directives are passed unanimously has the potential to radically shake up how tax policy is made in the EU. Here to talk us through where things are and where they're going is the author of the Last Word column in Tax Notes International, Robert Goulder. Bob, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Dave. It's great to be here. Why don't we start with a bit of background on how the EU makes decisions, specifically in tax Mm -hmm. and elsewhere, yeah. Well, first you have to understand that the European Union is not a static enterprise. It has evolved a great deal over the last half century. Uh, you may know when it first got started, very humble origins. It was it was just six countries. And when they decided to get together and pool their resources and do things on a collective basis, which necessarily means sacrificing some of your political sovereignty, it wanted to do this so that the interests of none of those six member states would be adversely affected. And the best way to guarantee that is to say, if the six of us cannot all agree that this is the right policy on transportation, or this is the right policy on nuclear regulation, or this is the right policy on farming or on fisheries, if we can't all agree, then it doesn't move forward. Well, that is a prescription for very slow, thoughtful, deliberative movement. And it's really only achievable when you have a sort of a small quorum of of decision makers. By the time you get to the 1990s and the time of the Maastricht Treaty, the EU's grown from six countries to about 15 countries. And now, with all the expansion that's happened in recent decades, there are up to 28 EU member states. Now, with Brexit, we know what's going to happen March 29th, 2019. The United Kingdom is presumably going to leave they'll be down to 27, but still 28, 27 is beside the point. You cannot get that many countries to agree on anything of great importance. And even if you could, for the sake of political horse trading, you know, countries might gang up and oppose a measure because they want a favor from another country. It just, you cannot get things done when you have a unanimity requirement. Think of the United States Congress. Could you imagine any situation where you could get 100 senators to to agree on something? It just it wouldn't happen. So this is a prescription for stagnation. It reflects an inability of EU decision makers to get things done. And the consequence has been that there's been a shift away from the EU to the OECD. You know, geographically, you're just talking about those folks in Paris versus those folks in Brussels. It's not that far away. And they're all Europeans who speak with French accents. But significantly, it's different because the constituency of who makes up the OECD is very different than who makes up the European Union. Union. So really, they have the system called qualified majority voting. And we can talk about what that means. But it it's, makes a lot of sense. It allows a majority of countries to move forward, even though a few countries are objecting to it. But they didn't allow that to apply to taxes because tax is sort of the, the last shred of political sovereignty that national lawmakers are going to cling to. They'll give up everything. They'll give up transportation, banking, fisheries, agriculture all of their political competencies, they might give that up for the sake of greater efficiency and greater power when you're working together as a collective enterprise. But they're not going to give up 
taxes because to control tax is to control significant aspects of your domestic economy, not just the tax rates, but the tax base. You know, you get the same thing in this country. Politicians do not want to give up their ability to say what pieces of property are going to be exempt from the local sales tax or from the local property tax or whatnot. What, you know, are you going to tax a, a yoga studio or a tanning salon? Local bureaucrats want to make those decisions and they'll be damned if they have to give them up to this pan-national enterprise. So what sort of uh, proposals are being hung up by this unanimity requirement? Well, a, a lot. Some are hung up to the point where they just go away. They're withdrawn. And others just sort of die a slow death. There's something called the savings tax directive, which they eventually got, but it took them 25 years or so to get it. First proposed in 1989 eventually comes into effect in 2015. And then there are things that just never, ever get passed, period. Things that come to mind as the most prominent examples are the CCCTB, the Common Consolidated Corporate Tax Base, and the Financial Transactions Tax. Now, you would have thought in Europe, after the great financial crisis, okay, where the perception is that the financial sector inflicted all of this harm on the, the households of Europe, and the bankers all made out fine, none of them went to jail. And austerity is imposed on people in the terms of paying more tax and getting less public service in return. You would have thought that under these times of austerity, which is very unpopular, a financial transactions tax would have passed easily. Yet in the immediate aftermath of the financial crisis and the global Great Recession, they couldn't pass it because you have one or two member states saying, no, we don't want to do that. You know, the United Kingdom, they've got the, the financial center in the city of London, the world's biggest financial center, actually, for the time being. I don't think that's going to last for very long. But they don't want to see a financial transaction tax. So they're able to kill it. So you might have 27 countries saying, this is a great idea. And our constituents are demanding this. And you have one country saying, nope, not going to happen. And it doesn't go anywhere. All right. So it, I can see the self-interest involved in a financial transaction tax. How about the, you mentioned the CCCTB. Mm -hmm. now, now that proposal would harmonize tax bases across the EU and also handle apportionment of income taxes between the member states. Who's afraid of the CCCTB? Ah, well, for people who have a proficiency of, of some sorts in state and local taxation here in the U.S., they might be familiar with how the states under the MTC will divvy up the corporate tax base. There's a formula and the components for the formula are your property, your payroll, and your sales. And there's this movement to sort of de-emphasize property and de-emphasize payroll and, and go to like a single sales factor, which would be a subject for a whole other podcast. But you can see movement in that direction if you get something like the CCCTB. So there are countries right now in which multinational corporations are booking a lot of profits but they actually account for a very, very small share of that multinational corporation's sales. A place like Luxembourg, a place like the Netherlands, a place like Belgium, Ireland. These countries are not huge market jurisdictions, but companies can book a significant amount of their profits there because of base erosion techniques. So there are winners and losers when you go to a system of formulary apportionment. And that is going to have huge consequences if, if this happens, Dave, because I talked before about the divide of uh, the sort of 
political interests between the OECD and the EU. If we get to a point, if we fast forward 10 years and the EU, because of qualified majority voting, gets the CCCTP, then you have formulary apportionment within the world's largest trading block of you know over 500 million consumers, right? Now, how is that not going to have a spillover effect? on what the OECD has to say in their transfer pricing guidance. You know, are you going to have a greater acceptance of residual profit splits or this idea that, oh, we have to find comparables. We have to search out comparables to figure out if these related party transactions are being properly taxed. Formulary apportionment doesn't care at all about comparables. It basically says this is is beyond irrelevant. Don't bother us with these details of comparability. Yet that is how the U.S. does transfer pricing. That's how Japan does transfer pricing. That's how everybody who has a tax treaty that's more or less based on the OECD model does transfer pricing. The arm's length method will not live long on this earth once you have a huge cluster of the global economy like the EU doing something that's completely different. I guess, and more to the point, I guess, since you would have that large trading block in the EU that says formula apportionment is the way to go and among the U.S. states saying formula apportionment yes, is the way to go. Yes, that's, uh, yes, it would actually be two trading blocks, but note that it's only internal. Right. So when a multinational, if Michelin Corp, the company that makes the tires in France, right, if they would be on formula apportionment for transactions with their EU affiliates in the 27 EU member states. But if they're dealing with Brazil or they're dealing with South Africa or they're dealing with Australia, then you would have a system that's not formally apportionment. You'd go back to OECD transfer pricing guidelines and the arm's length method and this obsession with, with comparables. And why do you want two systems? Why do you want two concepts of finding the right transfer price? when they're really sort of polar opposites. And yeah, the spillover effects of the CCCTB would be very real. It would take a while for that to happen, but it would affect many more people beyond just Europe. So um, uh, turning back to the qualified majority mm-hmm. voting, how would that work if they were to replace unit? Okay. So this is all in the EU treaty, sometimes called the Treaty of Lisbon. Editorially, we like to refer to it as the TFEU, the Treaty on the Functioning of the European Union. And what it has to say about qualified majority voting is that you need 55%. The, that's the threshold. Uh, 55% of the member states and 65% of the population. Now, what does that mean currently before Brexit takes effect with 28 member states, you satisfy the 55% threshold if you can get 16 countries to agree to something. That is a far cry from unanimity. You could literally have, just do the math there, uh, 28 uh, minus 60. You, okay, you could have 12 dissenters. You could have 12 EU member states saying, we don't like this, but it still passes because you have the other 16 saying, we want it. So again, but then I guess that that second portion of it, that sixty-five yeah. of the population, means that it's a, not going to be a bunch of small countries ganging up on a uh, larger country. Y- yeah, right. It helps if a country with a huge population, a Germany or a France or an Italy or Spain, is, is in your camp. Yeah. Okay. So how would they go about getting this change? It seems like a very major change to the way that business is done. Yes. Well, you're probably thinking that if this is such a fantastic idea, how come they haven't already done it? And part of it is a matter of political will. They're going to be enemy. They're going to be people who don't like this. Whoever does this is probably going to burn some bridges behind them. And the main instigator at this point is Jean-Claude Juncker. He's not a young man. He's sort of coming towards the end of his political life, let's say. And, And for him to put his 
personal clout and his personal political capital into this is very telling. It's an issue that he's embraced uh, and he's identifying himself with this. And if it fails, then, hey, at least he, he can say he tried. But if it succeeds, he will go down in history as just a master politician who's allowed the EU for generations to come to move more expeditiously and more efficiently. So what he wants to avoid is having to renegotiate the EU treaty. So just stick with the Treaty of Lisbon. We don't need another one. And it's very complicated to renegotiate these treaties. Certain countries have to ratify treaties by referendum. That gets messy because with all of the nationalists, sort of the backlash to globalization that you have right now, you see it in the UK with the Brexit leavers. You see it in France with the Gilets jaunes protests. All of this backlash against globalization, it would be really hard to pass something on a referendum. Okay, So we don't want to change the EU treaty. What can you do within the EU treaty? Well, there's two things you can do. There's a Article 115, 116, which lay all this out. And what they do is they say, hey, if you can identify a market distortion, a place where you currently have unanimity requirement, but if it's causing a market distortion, then you can sort of flick a switch and opt out of unanimity and get on to qualified majority voting. And everyone thought that this is how they were going to do it. I wrote a column not long ago sort of thinking, well, this is the path that they're going to take. You know, get to qualified majority voting by saying, you know, lack of this in the tax space is causing a market distortion. Well, people have looked at this in terms in lots of economists and lawyers, and they're wondering if that's not such a great idea because it would result in a court challenge. You'd have countries like Ireland, Luxembourg, Netherlands, Belgium, countries that really are probably not going to come out as winners under qualified majority voting in the tax space. They're going to challenge this. They're, they're going to take it before the European courts and you're going to have the EU Court of Justice probably ultimately deciding. So the bar, the evidentiary bar for what is a market distortion and is the market distortion caused by the lack of EU central guidance, that both the distortion and the causality could be real problems from the litigation standpoint. So they sort of took that approach to getting to qualified majority voting and put it to the side. And they're looking at what's called the passerelle clauses. You're probably wondering what passerelle is. Yes, yes. Absolutely. It is not a, uh, a soccer player. It's not that guy that plays for Real Madrid. No. Uh, passerelle is actually the French word for a small and informal bridge. Okay. okay? Or like, kind of like a footpath. Pretty evocative, yeah. Yes. It, it gets you from point A to point B. It gets you to where you want to go, but it's not really the main road. So a small sort of indirect footbridge, if you will. That's a somewhat figurative translation of what uh, passerelle. So it's means. sort of like a, I've heard of this desire pathways. I think they're called. It's it's when the the dirt is worn down between two sidewalks. Yes, because people have taken matters in their own hands and say, "That's where I'm going. This is how I'm going to get there." Okay, and it's a very uh, appropriate metaphor here because when they wrote the Treaty of Lisbon, they had these dividing lines between where you're going to have unanimity and where you're going to have qualified majority uh, voting. And really, for the mo- other than like military and tax, everything already is on qualified majority voting because they have to get stuff done, right? So how do you do this? There's an article in there. There's a general passerelle clause and specific passerelle clauses. The general one, it's uh, Article 48 of the current treaty that says here's a procedure where if the commission decides on a one-off basis that there's an issue that's so important it has to move forward, it's going to go to qualified majority voting. If they can overcome two hurdles, they can get there. So one hurdle is to put the motion before the European Parliament. 
which normally doesn't have that much influence as you'd think. Typically, when you think about a European government, you think about the parliament. It's very influential. The, the members are democratically elected and they vote on things, right? They can pass things or reject things. There's a bit of a democratic deficit within the EU framework in that the EU parliament is not nearly as powerful as the council or the commission. Often they have a mere consultory role. But what this would do, the passerelle clause would say, put the matter before the European Parliament. And it's not just as a a matter of consultation. They actually have to vote on it. A simple majority. If a simple majority of the Parliament says, let's take this matter and eliminate the unanimity requirement, that's your first hurdle. And that's just 50 percent of of Parliament, okay? Mm -hmm. The other, which is a bit more challenging, is to take this idea that we're going to have political competency over a particular issue and we're going to eliminate the unanimity rule. That goes before the national legislature. The head of state has to table it in the domestic legislature where it has to sit for six months. And if nobody votes against it, and when I say nobody, if the body does not vote against it in six months, then it's deemed approved. In the case of Ireland, which has, of course, a very competitive corporate tax system, you'd put it before the Irish parliament and they'd have six months to vote against it if they so you know, wanted to. And it's hard to imagine them not doing it. Right. And that would have to happen in every single member state. So you'd have to have unanimity among the EU member states to overcome that second hurdle. And I think it's hard to imagine that happening. I could see the Netherlands saying no. I could imagine Ireland saying no. If the UK were not leaving, I would imagine them saying no. I think you'd probably have the larger member states, Germany and France, saying, oh, yeah, this is great. Let's do this. You know, They're the ones that would pass it. Yeah, Portugal, Greece, I don't know. So while I think that going to qualified majority voting is undeniably a way to help expedite movement of big picture tax policy reforms that probably need to happen, if it requires unanimity to get away from unanimity, I'm not sure it's going to happen. So do you think if they went to qualified majority voting that we shortly thereafter see a CCCTB and an FTT and, and other proposals like that moving through quickly? Well, just just very recently, the commission released a roadmap for how these how this trajectory might look, and they've bifurcated it between tax issues that would be fast tracked and tax issues that they would hope to get to by 2025. Uh, 2025 sounds like it's uh, like a long way off, but really, I mean, it's not that far away. But if you have a savings tax directive that takes 25 years, that's, that's tomorrow. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. So in one sense, everything's being fast-tracked. But the way that they lined this up, they went for the low-hanging fruit first. The things that are going to be fast-tracked, there's a measure relating to mutual assistance in tax administration as it relates to tax fraud, tax avoidance, and money laundering. And they would like all the countries of Europe to get together and say, when something is is a measure to counter tax fraud and money laundering, let's get away from the unanimity requirement on that. Because if we can't patch the holes in our tax system, we're just, you know, we're throwing away money. There's tax revenue that we're not collecting that we should be. I mean, there's an estimate out there with carousel fraud in the VAT area. It's costing them like 50 billion euros a year. 
huge amounts of money that it's not technically a new tax or a tax hike. It's money that should be collected under current law and isn't because of enforcement-related issues. So that's something that they would like to fast-track. So that's mutual assistance on tax administration focused on money laundering, tax uh, fraud, and tax evasion. Try to do that in the short term, meaning like the next couple of years. The second um, area is also to be fast-tracked, has to do with climate change. Europe is, I think it's fair to say, they're a little bit more sensitive about climate change issues than some other parts of the world. They want to be perceived as leaders, whether you're talking about the Paris Accord or the Kyoto Agreement or these things. They want to take this seriously. And if you could have a type of carbon tax or other environmental taxes imposed at the EU level that all EU member states would have to buy into – They think that that's sufficiently important because they view it as sort of like a public health and safety issue, really. You know, it's the environment, right? Global warming, that kind of stuff. The costs of not doing so are alarming to a lot of people. I mean, there's some projections about what the costs are to governments of not controlling climate change. And there, you know, the figure in one of the EU documents was $57 a year. So they're losing more by not having a carbon tax than they are by not stopping carousel fraud. Now, maybe there's some fanciful assumptions that are being made in those economic estimates, but there's a lot of goodwill. There's sort of like a halo effect, you know, that thinking is that nobody wants higher taxes, but gosh, if it's going to respond to climate change, we need to do it, if not for ourselves, for our children or our grandchildren. Now, ironically, this is happening at the same time that you have the gilets jaunes, the, the yellow vest protests in France. And part of that is about raising fuel taxes. So there's, there's that whole issue that sort of a, an odd juxtaposition. But that's another issue that they want to fast track. The two items that they're talking about putting off till 2025 are reconceptualizing the European VAT. So not the carousel fraud thing, but going from a place of origin concept to a place of destination concept. If you go into tax notes and you read the material on VAT scholars and consumption tax experts, they often say that the consumption taxes you see in places like Australia or New Zealand are much better conceived as a framework than the European VAT. The European VAT is really kind of old and rusty when you stop and think about it. It reflects uh, mentalities back in the 60s and 70s. It needs an update. And you don't want one country to hold back progress on something as vital as VAT. Because for every one of these European member states, the revenue that they get from VAT is a major component of how they pay for for everything. It's a huge contribution to their public finances. And they need to modernize their VAT. That's something where they say, we need qualified majority voting, and we'll put that on the back burner, sort of. As you say, 2025 really isn't that far away. The other thing is the financial transaction tax and the common consolidated corporate tax base. So if you're a fan of the CCCTB, you might have to wait until 2025. So what, what's your prediction? What do you think is going to happen with this proposal as they're putting it out there? Is it going to get through the EU parliament and we're going to have to wait to see a veto from national parliaments? Yes, exactly. Uh, you read my mind. My crystal ball, which I consult every once I, in a I while. Can, I can see it. You can it's, see it's it right nice. there. It's, it's, it's a, a very visual podcast. Right. My crystal ball says you are not going to have a problem getting 50% of the European Parliament to go along with this. It is going to be the national 
parliaments that object. And it's because of political sovereignty. It goes back to what I mentioned earlier at the beginning of the podcast. The last shred of political competency that national legislators are going to cling to is the ability to tax. They just don't want to give it up. And if you're a country that – if you think that your competitive advantage depends on having these features – that the EU wants to eliminate, why would you let them take away your competitive advantage? I don't see how you overcome that. Do you see any way that pushing this more, let's call it an extreme measure, could lead to some sort of compromise on tax policy in the future? Well, yeah. So the compromise that I see are countries opposed to qualified majority voting saying, we'll work with you on tax fraud. We'll work with you on money laundering. And we'll work with you on climate change. And we'll even work with you on VAT because who pays VAT? Consumers pay VAT, right? Businesses generally don't pay VAT. The burden does not fall on on the investor. And therefore, if you increase VAT, you're not necessarily shooting yourself in the foot in terms of attracting foreign direct investment. But when it comes to corporate taxes, that's where I think they draw the line. I think the compromise is you can have qualified majority voting on everything except how we tax multinationals because we are just enjoying the status quo too much. We're not going to let you have that. Well, we'll definitely have to check in to find out how good your crystal ball is in the future after this plays out a bit. Yes. But, uh, Bob, where can listeners find you online? Uh, They can find me online on Twitter at Robert Goulder. And they can email me at uh, robert.goulder at taxanalyst.org. And they can read me in the pages of Tax Notes International and online in my favorite product, uh, Worldwide Tax Daily. Thank you for being here. My pleasure. And make sure to pick up your crystal ball on the way out. Uh, I'm not going to drop it. And now, coming attractions. Each week, we preview commentary that will be appearing in the next issue of the Tax Notes magazines. We're joined by executive editor for commentary, Jasper Smith. Jasper, what will you have for us? In Tax Notes, Libin Zhang considers the TCJA's limit on business interest expenses, explaining Section 163J's aggregation rules and how some businesses can elect out of the limitation, while Eugene Sego discusses recently released final regulations on uniform capitalization. In state tax notes, Billy Hamilton discusses the taxes and fees that support the national 911 emergency system. And Bruce Nelson examines Colorado's recent emergency regulation, its effects on nexus and sourcing for vendors, and the resulting expanded sales tax collection requirements. And in Tax Notes International, Bruce Zagaris examines the difficulties posed for taxpayers who voluntarily cooperate with multiple tax jurisdictions, while three German tax professors discuss tax reform and the challenges of taxation and value creation in a digital economy. You can read all that and a lot more in the January 21st editions of Tax Notes, State Tax Notes, and Tax Notes International. That's it for this week. You can follow me on Twitter at TaxStew, that's S-T-E-W, If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for a future episode, you can email us at podcast at taxanalyst.org. As always, if you like what we're doing here, please leave a rating or review wherever you download this podcast. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Notes Talk is a production of Tax Notes. You can learn more about us by visiting www.taxnotes.com backslash products. When major media wants the straight story, they turn to Tax Notes. Thank you for listening, and join us again for another edition of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Analyst Inc. does not provide tax advice or tax preparation services. Nothing in the podcast constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice. A full disclaimer is included in the transcript.